Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for November 12, 2023. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Welcome, as always, Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, excited about tonight's show. In about 20 minutes, Dr. Magic Wade of the University of Illinois Springfield is going to come on and tell us about some city politics, some uh, crime and, and gun violence. Um, research she's done recently, and, and just a lot of the politics and, and civic information surrounding that. But until then, as we previewed last week, we had, um, you know, not an even year election, but a pretty interesting odd year election um, on Tuesday. Uh, what seemed to be a very important election to be a harbinger of um, about, uh, you know, 12 months from now. And so we had a lot of different races to talk about. Before we get into, you know, we can go state by state, Tim, but I'm just going to ask you, of the results we saw, which one to you was the biggest indicator of what could happen in November 2024? Well, I would have to say, of all things, the race we lost. Mississippi, it was way, 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 way closer than it should have been. Mississippi is such a red state. Uh, I have a sister-in-law from there. She, with a straight face, told me that growing up, she knew not one white person that voted Democratic. Seriously, not, not, not one. <laughs> that state is very, very, very red. Republicans totally control everything in that state. Governor running for re-election. And uh, barely wins. Barely wins. He wins by 4.6%. Uh now, I know he's a terrible governor and, and, and all of that, but still, uh, if, for instance, we have a turnout like we had in Jackson, uh, black voters overvoted. If, if that happens, uh, I, 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 I'm, I, feel, I feel good about 2024 if what happened in Mississippi is translated nationwide. Now, that might have been not been what you were expecting me to say, but. Well, well, no, and all of these races have their own pieces of, of you know, results that you can glean um, as important. Um, echoing what your sister-in-law said, um, I had a political consultant that worked in that state in the early, early 2000s that told me that there were a lot of white Mississippians that were against um, free universal kindergarten um, into the late 90s, into the early 2000s, 
because it would mean that, that a lot of black Mississippians would, you know, go to kindergarten. And I just, I mean, and that was just incomprehensible that someone would, mm-hmm. would look at things that way. But, you know, that's, but, you know, what it is. Um, that, that state. Yeah, uh, Tim, yeah, go but, ahead. But, but, but I was going to say, what have black Mississippians notoriously not been doing? That state voting. has very poor African-American voting in, yes. num- voting in numbers that represented even their percentage of the electorate down there. They could swing some elections. They almost swung this one. Uh, if they turn out like that nationwide, got to feel pretty good for the president, right? Because that's that's really who helped him a lot. In the last election, that's who saved him in the primaries. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, it is a fascinating result. So let's talk about Mississippi. I'm going to talk a little more. Then we may go into something else. Um, but but Mississippi. I mean, I, I've heard that you know they said, oh well, um, Brandon Presley's a cheat code, if you will, because he is so popular. I think a lot of this did have to do with how unpopular Tate Reeves is. Tate Reeves just doesn't look like this, you know, MAGA manly man that a lot of the Republicans really gravitate to. And then you add to it this scandal that he, you know, uh, was involved in with, um, you know, welfare funds. And then, of course, I mean, it's just an absolute incompetent embarrassment when you have the largest city in your state, the capital city in your state has a clean water crisis. I mean, when we think mm-hmm. about, like, what is the foundational base of civic government, getting the people clean water, I mean, that's at the bottom of the Maslow's governmental hierarchy of needs. And, and, and mm-hmm. Tate Reeves' administration struggled with it. I mean, that really says a lot about all the voters that, that put Tate Reeves back into office. And I don't mean just in this general election. If you're somebody that says, oh, I can't vote for Democrats, you have primary elections. You could have turned that guy out in the primary. I know he may not have had much opposition. That says a lot about their primary and their state if they can't primary guy that that had a welfare scandal that gave millions of dollars, including money to the literal – Million dollar man Ted DiBiase. Ken? Yeah, but but you but still you you think of any list uh, best states in education, best states in healthcare, but you rank them from one from best to worst. Mississippi is just about all the time at the very end or right near the end of that list. Uh, they have nothing going for them. They've had nothing going for them for years. And yet, election after election after election, they elect Republicans statewide. They haven't elected a statewide Democrat in any constitutional office in this century. And and it it, it just boggles my mind that they almost turned a, a, a Republican out uh, because I I don't think I don't know if those scandals meant that much because. You know, poor, gover- poor governance has not meant anything 
uh, for the last 25 years down there. The, the, the voters down there would have a hard time making a case to me what the Republicans that they keep electing have done for them besides nothing. Uh, so yep. I still find I still find this 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 that result most shocking to me. Which which one was most shocking to you? Well, well let, let, I'm just going to tell you it's the case of if you keep getting if you keep uh, you know voting for what you have and you don't like it, you're just going to continue to get the same old thing. And um, I, I, one more point on this because I did want to you know cover Mississippi thoroughly uh, before we move on, and that would be that. Um, you know, they, they did have really, really poor African-American turnout in Louisiana. They didn't do that in Mississippi. So that shows that there's some lessons that someone can learn from the Presley campaign and take to other critical states next time. So that was an important lesson. Now, can Mississippi build on this? I don't know because the, their bench is, is pretty dry. Um, so, you know, we will see from there. Uh, talking about – Tim, you asked me a question, which one was the most important one. I had thinking going in, the most important one as a predictor of what may happen in 2024 to me was the Virginia legislative elections. I think I said it last week that I thought it was one to watch, and I think that it still was. Democrats, I think there were some people predicting, and maybe you too, Tim, that said – Democrats continue to hold the state Senate. The Republicans continue to hold the state House. Well, that wasn't the case. Democrats built on their lead in the state Senate by about one seat. They actually took over the majority in the state House. And um, Glenn Youngkin's uh, you know, aura of being you know, a little more moderate than the most MAGA individuals like a Donald Trump or a, a Ron DeSantis, the shine off that is gone. Um, I know this probably means a lot to um, you know, Virginians, and it probably doesn't mean that much to us other than what it might portend for next election. But it's, um, it, I just think it has that impact, plus it is Virginia because of its you know, you know, proximity to D.C. is a real lab of how they test strategies and whatnot um, for future campaigns. And one wow. final thing. That 15-week abortion ban that um, uh, Youngkin campaigned on, it got tried out, and it didn't seem to have a lot of popularity. Tim, what was your takeaway from the Virginia elections? That's exactly it. Governor Youngkin made a major mistake. He thought, hey, we're going to trot out what we consider middle ground. Let's do something uh, in moderation. He just kept using the word moderate moderation uh they don't understand something there is no middle ground uh they simply do not understand that in every state that's voting or has voted since the dobbs decision that people want abortion access to be legal period that that's it. They don't want to discuss well six weeks, fifteen weeks, this that uh, exceptions. They don't want to discuss that. The people want the right to decide. They feel a right has been taken away from them. That's why a lot of Republicans 
are voting against their own party on this uh, issue when when it's there on the ballot, and it, it was really on the ballot in Virginia, uh, front and center, even though the words weren't there. Governor Yunkin put it there. He doubled down on it, and I mean, you know, they the the Republicans uh, apparently just don't know. Uh, what to do about this? Do they? They? they uh, he he thought he had a winner, and the Republicans thought they had a winner. They even thought they had a future president. But this took the some of the uh, shine off of him. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't. Yeah, he's already, they got. They serve one term, and I don't know where he goes from here. Yeah, I mean, I guess he could run for Senate for whoever's. Are going to be up, and I don't know the ages and how long they're going to serve or anything like that. Um, but but it was just I thought it was weird math. Um, the, the the fifteen week number um, because you know um, it's it's a nine month pregnancy, a eighteen week pregnancy, and, and without remainders, neither one of those numbers are um, divisible. You know by fifteen. Um, and so I just always thought – I mean, and I know there's a lot of people like, no. I don't want really any restrictions. But if you would have gone with like a six-month ban or a um, 24-week ban, you know, because we think about trimesters, mm-hmm. that would be two full trimesters. And I'm not saying that would have worked, but mm-hmm. 15 and, weeks was and, such and, a weird number. Yeah, in the closing days of that campaign up there. The governor and Republicans in that state suddenly began to try to change the subject a week or two out, and they started trying to talk about economic issues, bread and butter issues, that sort of thing, and not talking so much about abortion. They realized, uh uh-oh, this issue is killing us, but they realized it's too late. It was too late a week or two out to do anything about it. The die had already been cast, and Democrats running against them had successfully made their case to the voters about this, and the voters came out and did what they did to them. Uh, I just wonder what that means, you know, for states like Virginia – during the national campaigns next year and stuff, if if they're going to try to change their tune, I, if I was them, I would. I, I wouldn't be wanting to talk about abortion anymore because I guarantee the Democrats are going to talk about it. And uh, Governor Yunkin learned it the hard way. Yeah, I think he announced he's not going to run for president, but uh, it seemed like that ship had sailed <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know that was that was kind of. Um, uh, just like a unnecessary announcement. Uh, another thing, you know, economic interest. I do wonder. Like somebody made another point, saying that you know he ran on a lot of um, this, you know, giving parents control and education. And while he may not have done the most draconian um, measures like a Ron DeSantis, people seem to be kind of on the uh, not not really into banning books and whatnot. And so even though his might not have been quite as far right, he got kind of associated with that. And, and then some of that was, I guess, with COVID restrictions and, and things that have just gone away. I mean, it's just not a relevant topic anymore. So that he didn't have that helping him. Also, 
One thing he did that was popular with a lot of folks, I mean, Democratic governors here in Georgia have done that, like Zell Miller, taking the food off of, you know, the sales tax off of food. Well, you can only do that one time. You can't do that over and over and over. So yeah. um, that would that that's something that may have helped elect him the first time, but you can't use it again, you know, and, unless we'll just say, oh, well, that was such a great idea. We just can't wait for the next one, Glenn, and he didn't have anything to follow it up with. He didn't have the Hope Scholarship or um, all those other things that Zell Miller did. Um, and so you know, I just think Virginia's going to be an interesting one. That's a state where if Republicans were going to start making a move in other states, you were going to see Virginia, like it did in 2021, come back more to the middle, you know, become a little more Republican. Now it's kind of righted the ship, and it's back in the same course it was in, um, you know, for the past roughly decade. Um, mm-hmm. So that's why I thought it was an important one. Let's talk about uh, another um, campaign I think that was a big one uh, because of what it could mean for this individual because he really has defied gravity in his state, and that was in Kentucky. Um Matt Be- uh I'm sorry, um, Andy Bashir defeated Matt Bevan last time. He wasn't running against Matt Bevan this time. I mean, Matt Bevan was so unpopular, and um, now he's running against, um, uh, you know, Daniel Cameron, who wasn't the incumbent, but he got in the um, Andy Bashir had incumbency and become so popular. Like you mentioned last week, a 64% approval rating. But in a very, very red state of Kentucky that's very conservative on national and presidential races, we always were wondering, where would this go? Um, And he won by um, a bigger margin than he won last time. Obviously, he wasn't incumbent. Tim, how big of a result was it for Democrats winning the Kentucky governor? Well, he he won the first time by a little over 5,000 votes, and this time he won by a little over 5%. He won by more in Kentucky than Tate Reeves did in Mississippi. Uh, and he was running against a very popular politician in his own right who got the most votes of any uh, are, are won by a bigger margin than, than any of the constitutional officers when at the year Andy Bashir got ele- uh, elected. Um, so Governor Bashir is a rising star in the Democratic Party. There, there, there is no doubt about that. Now he's 45 years old. He's photogenic. He's very good on the stump. Very good in front of the microphone. And he's got to be looked at as a rising star in the party. And Democrats who run in red states need to go to school on what he's been doing up there. Did you notice how many counties he won over in the eastern part of Kentucky, over in coal country, over in counties that Donald Trump got 70 or 80 percent of the vote in? He won those counties. He won uh, the Cincinnati suburbs. Uh, and he just destroyed Cameron in, in uh, Louisville and and in uh, Lexington in the big cities. Uh, so that victory that victory was complete. And again, again, 
Abortion was a huge part of that. Daniel Cameron, you, uh, you know, was a, a guy that preached uh, a, a total ban, you know, a total ban, no, no exceptions, all of that. And it came back to bite him because the voters just, you know, weren't happy with that. And, and another thing he tried to do is uh, nationalize the campaign, uh, say, well, you know, he's in the party with Biden and Biden this and Biden that and the other thing. And if the Kentucky race proved anything else, it was that none of this had anything to do with either presidential approval or 2024 polls. And the Kentucky race was a, a sure sign of that. Yeah, we're going to talk more about the futures, I think, really, of Cameron and uh, Bashir in a little while. But let's go ahead and switch over to our guest for at least the second time on the Kudzu Vine, Dr. Magic Wade. Welcome, Dr. Wade. Hello. Hi, David. And who are you there yes. with? Yeah, glad to have you on the show here. Um well, you know, we know you've been busy writing a bunch of different uh, papers on city politics and, and crime and, unfortunately, violent crime, which we we need you to write the paper on how to reduce it to zero. Um, but we know that's uh, probably beyond any one person. But I actually want to ask you some top questions about the topics but not about that actual research. I think Tim's got more on the actual research. So um, let's start off there. And I wanted to ask you about, uh, fortunately, a lot less um, impactful crime, but one we've heard a lot about, and I'm not sure how much it's, um, you know, true and how much it's overblown. And that would be all the talk of rampant shoplifting. Um, As you researched all this other crime, I mean, we know that there is more shoplifting, these gangs that come together and take things. But is it really bad, as, as some people are saying? Yeah, that's such a good question. So I think it's the framing around, like, organized retail theft and shoplifting and the way that we talk about why it might be something to be concerned about that gives some people pause when they hear news stories that draw attention to it in a sensational way. And so I think that there are a a couple key points that I would want to hit on. And I'm not – I don't do original research on this, but I do follow um, a lot of local news and media, a lot of public media. And so I've I've read a lot of um, pretty good reporting on this. And so I do think local reporters – so not TV news that are just going to cover a soundbite, but I do think there's been a lot of really good local investigative journalism that highlights how – there's a bunch of things happening that are contributing to this uh, increase in retail theft, but it's not having the effect on retailers that we might expect. And so the first thing that's happening is that we have a confluence of uh, a fentanyl and opioid crisis and, you know, just uh, increasing rates of addiction and overdose. And so the, uh, the way that, like say we can call it shoplifting, but it's really related to this bigger phenomenon um, is discussed, it often ignores the fact that a lot of people are using uh, shoplifting and then reselling uh, reselling practices in order to fuel this really debilitating addiction. And so that effect, um, I think, gets lost. And so I'll I'll give you a a really good example. Um, 
So it's very normal for retailers to experience people, you know, shoplifting. That's been something that's always been the case. Shrink is what they, they have a term for it. You know, they expect that a certain amount of loss is going to happen. And so these major retailers like Target, Whole Foods, Walgreens, you know, they experience shrink on a regular basis. And in some locations, they have more than others. So, you know, in places where there's more crime, they're going to have more shrink. But overall, these retailers have had record profits for the last few years. So the, the consequence of some of the more organized crime isn't like a loss to these big, huge corporations because they're making more money than they ever have been because consumers are spending so much money. But there is an element of um, really organized, like, mafia-style uh, criminal uh, networking. They're called these fencing operations, where very low-level people that are maybe people who are unhoused, maybe they're people who are just trying to boost some goods so that they can get 50 bucks to, you know, in, you know, fuel their drug addiction. But they're being preyed upon by, like, organizations of people who are often multi-state who are then reselling these goods often on Amazon. And so um, I'm not sure, I, I, there's some good uh, reporting on this that I can maybe send you some links to some good articles, but um, there, there's two recent cases that were a huge deal and they're kind of different. So one of the examples was actually out of uh, Illinois. Um, there was a huge, uh, like an $8 million uh, resell of goods operation that was happening in all these warehouses between like Illinois and California and maybe some other states. And so where there was these street teams of people um, who would go in and, you know, they hit up the Walgreens, they hit up the same stores, and the stuff that they steal is like really expensive cosmetics and like facial products and lotion and stuff. And so, you know, as, as a woman who buys these things, um, it was very obvious to me when I started seeing them on Amazon for half the price that something was going on. And you feel kind of guilty. You know, you feel kind of like bad buying it, but it's so expensive in, you know, in the store that you, you, you do, um, although I've stopped doing it because I do think it contributes to it. But what's really new is that you have the ability to resell this stuff on a national market. And, it's, and so this isn't like small-time you know, somebody like just, you know, shoplifting to, to get a little bit of money to, to, you know, feed their family or something. These are people who are actually being preyed upon by what I would liken to, like, mafia-style, really organized groups of, like, a dozen people who are then distributing these goods nationally, and they're making all the money. So, you know, that's kind of, like, one of the elements. Now, in terms of, like, how bad is it? Like, what is that, you know, how do we assess how bad this is? Um, so... The corporations aren't losing tons of money to their bottom line because spending is still way up. Um, the people who work in these stores, I think, um, are the, like, so, so consumers are impacted. Yes, there's higher prices. We all, you know, see that. And I do think some of it is attributed to the, the strength. Um, and some of it's because people are just willing to pay a premium for these products. Um, but people who work in stores that experience shoplifting on a regular basis are just they, they have no psychological safety you know you have people coming in you can't you, if you say anything to them people might be threatening they may be violent um the increase like if you look at the um the, the retail associations like a lot of people that work in these stores are unionized and they talk about just the increase in assault so the ceo of target said that 
he's seen like a over a hundred percent increase in a, in assault on his workers over the last few years because you know if you say something to somebody who's walking out, they might get verbally or physically assaulted with you. So that's kind of like what's going on at the big scale. But there's another kind of theft that I actually think is is more like like, like that's really sad for the people that work in the stores, and it's really frustrating for the consumers. Um, but what I think is like a really, really underlooked is um, the way that the, the fentanyl market is actually really intertwined with the like low-level shoplifters who are going into places and just stealing enough goods every day to then basically give them to a middleman who resells them. Um, and there was a really good article, um, the Los Angeles Daily News had a four-part series um, that was on the fentanyl market in L.A. where, you know, they have a huge problem with uh, people who are unhoused, people who are addicted to fentanyl, and then it's related to a lot of the, like, low-level shoplifting that they're seeing where just individuals are going into stores, but then they bring it out to, there's this park in L.A. called MacArthur Park, um, and they, people resell these goods, and the poor people who are just going in and stealing, I mean, it's, you know, I know people maybe don't feel bad for people who shoplift, but these people are doing it like a full-time job just to get money for drugs. And that's like, it's, it's, it's horrible. And so, you know, people see this. And so, you know, when we talk about, like, how bad is it, well, it's not everywhere. You know, like, I don't live in a place where there's tons of organized retail theft. I mean, there's shoplifting. And it's, I think it's bad for whom. So I think that's who you should ask. Like, how bad is it and for whom? If you work in a store and you have to deal with people coming in, and I, I don't know why people would imagine that the people who work in these businesses don't care. I mean, I've worked in stores. I've worked in restaurants. I've worked in bars. You don't like it when people steal. That's really, like, it, it's upsetting. Um, but then it's also the people who are, like, kind of caught in this vicious cycle of drug addiction and homelessness and poverty who are, I mean, like, basically being preyed upon because, you know, they're able to, to to traffic goods that then people make a premium on premium on when they resell. So that's also really, um, you know, an externality that's created by it. And then, of course, you know, consumers buy higher prices. Um, so a couple other examples that we've seen is, you know, I don't know how much catalytic converter theft you guys have, but that's also organized. Like huge, like groups of people are getting like, you know, lower level people to go boost people's catalytic converters and then they're selling them on a huge market. So there's there was like a huge there was like a huge bust in Chicago of like a two hundred and fifty million dollar catalytic converter operation. And so there are some pretty big enterprises. Um but you know it's not it's not like that everywhere. Um and then I don't know if you guys heard about the Philadelphia uh, liquor store looting that happened a couple of weeks ago, and they shut down all the liquor stores in town um, for a couple of days because uh, there was basically a police officer had been, uh, you know, charged with excessive use of force or something, and then he was cleared of all charges, and there were riots, but one of the – there were, like, maybe demonstrations that quickly turned into, like, dozens of liquor stores in uh, Philadelphia – having people just run into them, and they had to shut them down for a couple of days. And so, you know, people are really worried about this, and it's not just like a, a moral panic, but I think it depends who you, who you see as, as affected by it that might make us 
have a little bit of pause about like, well, is it as bad? Well, how does it affect me? Okay, well, the lotion, maybe the lotion that I have to buy is now five bucks more, you know, but I do think it affects people in ways that we sometimes don't, like it affects the most vulnerable people, like the people who live in neighborhoods where they're closing down Target and now you can't, you know, go to get, go to a store easily. So, I I mean, this happens, I think it's, yeah, I think it's real, <laughs> um, but I think yeah. it's not necessarily affecting the people that we necessarily think. Like retailers aren't going; they're not going broke. They're making plenty of money because they can just move to a different neighborhood. Yes, I, I think I, I read something on the conversation that had some of the points um, that, that you touched on, and you touched on a lot more. But I think one of the most salient points you made is it's a complex issue, and I think a lot of times when things like this get covered. Everybody goes, oh, this one thing, you know, just doing this one thing will fix this whole multifaceted problem. And with this and yeah. many other things, that's just yeah. not a real plan. Yeah. It sounds good. Well, and I know that – so it's it's easy to attribute it to – there are definitely cities um, and states where they did lower the penalties for – you know, they make uh, stealing goods under $1,000 into a misdemeanor. You know, you make it a citable offense. But – even in places where the laws are more – like, the laws against shop, shoplifting aren't really that stringent anywhere. So that's the thing. It's like, I think what's really changed um, is the, the fentanyl issue for certain low level and then the national distribution opportunity is using Amazon. Like, I think those are – they're separate types, but I think those have just made it so much more – it's, it's not only super profitable for people, but some people are using this as a way to survive. Like more people are using it as a way to survive. I mean, you know, the, I don't know, no one talks about the opioid epidemic anymore, but people that live on the front lines, the, the first responders know that this is happening. You know, it's very, it gets very little attention, but the number of overdoses has continued to increase for the last five years. I mean, more people overdose than they do get murdered. So, uh, yeah, d- drugs always, problem. unfortunately, such a, a huge issue. Uh, I will leave this story with something good before I go into the next one. Oh, um, good. And you mentioned <laughs> Amazon. Uh, well, it, you know, I thought about, you know, how Amazon stores, the, the ones that they had rolled out, you, you go in and you kind of like have to scan some form of payment. And then you just take out whatever oh, yeah. you want. You, shoplifting yeah, is yeah. Uh, shopping, but you're not <laughs> st- shoplifting. You're you're just walking out, and I thought, well, maybe yeah, that might be a, a yeah. heel to it. Well, Technology, I teach at a college, yeah. Georgia Highlands, and this semester uh-huh. they opened up this little snack bar store that's not machines. Um, the the uh-huh. food is just out there in this one little area of the campus, and the drinks are out there, and the students or the faculty members pick it up, and they scan their card, and they walk away with it. Now, uh-huh. there are cameras, but this uh-huh. is pretty much the honor system, and Thus far, oh. you know, we're, you know, three or four months into the, the um, semester, the honor system yeah. seems to be working really, really well. Uh, and so obviously we couldn't do this everywhere. But at least it's good to know that even even among college students who get, get blamed for everything, yeah. <laughs> um, that, well, that there, there's yeah. some good in the world. So, um, so I let think me it's move on important. To, it's go, ahead. A, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say it's, even though these problems are getting worse in certain places, it's not like we're living in some, you know, dystopian hellscape where everywhere you go, it, there's constant lawlessness. I just think in certain places it's, it, it is worse and it's different than it was before. So it's a very stark contrast. 
um, you know, compared to a few years ago when we really did see some of the, some of this level of, of um, you know, retail theft or something. But I think, you know, most of us in, – in my, in my Walmart, the stuff's not behind glass. You know, you can still go in there and just grab it. Yes. Um, well, I bet we could talk about just this one topic for a solid <laughs> hour, but let, let's move on to something else. And, and this is something that I, I prompted you about, but I actually talked, found out more since I actually booked you um, for okay. the show. I was talking to a family member. We were talking about just like he works in logistics and central locations and whatnot. Um, and he said, and I just mentioned, you know, Memphis is where, uh, um, you know, uh, Federal Express is. And he said, oh, they're – you know, he doesn't do the rankings, but he said, oh, they're considered a really, really bad um, workforce. You know, it, it's a, a really – it's rated very low. Um, oh. And I thought, really? And I know that Memphis recently has been the number one crime, a violent yeah. crime, murder capital recently. Jackson, Mississippi's mm-hmm. high. Birmingham, Alabama's real high. Yeah, and none of those three cities are. are recruiting a lot of business. Now, I wanted to see what you knew about that being kind of a self-defeating cycle. You uh, yeah. um, are seen as a very violent city. You don't uh, recruit businesses. You don't, you know, add jobs that would be hope, and therefore there's no yeah. hope. There's more violence, and you just continue yeah. on with that cycle. In your research, how much is that the case, or are there other cities that are the opposite that are recruiting new business and breaking yeah. up that cycle? That's a great, uh, yeah. So, you know, the way the way that I think about, especially the way that gun violence, you know, it ebbs and flows over time, is we're in an episode of a pretty stark increase over just a few few years, and so in a lot of these cities um, like Memphis or even St. Louis or even Philadelphia, where they're they're experiencing pre- some pretty historically high rates of gun violence. Some, some of the highest they've ever seen, even compared to, like, the 90s when things were um, in major cities, you know, very violent. It was as recently as 2014 that we had the fewest number of homicides in American history. And we can think, like, well, what was going on so well in 2014? We had a recession. Like, with the economy sucked back in 2014. You know, the unemployment was very high. Um, we still had lots of gun ownership. We still had lots of, uh, you know, poverty. We still had a lot of um, challenges in this country, but we had made a lot of progress on uh, reducing crime and gun violence. And I think the unfortunate observation from this, and I really am informed by the work of this sociologist named Patrick Sharkey, who studied the great crime decline. And one of the, the things that we didn't do is we didn't fix the underlying, like the root causes. Basically, we, we incarcerated a lot of people, and that reduced crime. And we also had some kind of like just lucky accidents. You know, in some places, we don't really know why crime went down. Like, people don't agree on what the causes were. Some of it's maybe just demographic change. You know, some of it's people relocating. So a lot of people moved out of the big cities because they got so expensive. And so, you know, you just have different patterns of people uh, and ge- geography, but the cities that, um, you know, even have reduced their violence a lot, there were always really, like, neighborhoods where things never really improved, and so what I think we're seeing is that, like, the, like the chickens are coming home to roost. You have places where there haven't been opportunities for decades, and then we have this big shock, 
to everybody's lives during the pandemic. And then you have, you know, an abundance of, of guns and people who really don't see a lot of opportunities in their communities. And what's really interesting that I, I learned from a, a research study, I was just at this gun violence conference in Chicago, a national gun violence conference, and the people were from all different academic disciplines. So it was like public health researchers, public policy people, um, psychologists, you know, it was all different. And they did research on kids from, like, the types of communities that have a lot of gun violence, and they asked them what they wanted to do when they grow up. You know, like, what kind of ambitions do kids have that live in really tough places? And very few kids aspired to have, like, a normal middle-class job. So they didn't want to go work at FedEx. They all wanted to be famous. Like, they wanted to be, like, rich. They wanted to be an influencer. And a lot of young kids want to do this anyway. But I think there is something in not feeling hopeful about, like, ever attaining, let's say, just like a boring middle-class life that a lot of us, you know, think is we take for granted, just like working at the post office, you know, like feeding, getting married, having kids. Like, like, kids don't see that in their communities because there's not even, like, a middle class. So I think the, like, uh, you know, work, like, not working, like if those jobs don't exist, if FedEx isn't going to be there, then I think that contributes to people saying, man, you know what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to get involved in, in crime. I'm going to do something that, that actually seems like it'll be like the only thing that's available for me. And it's a vicious cycle um, because we know that there are, I mean, we know that like there are jobs, but I don't think people want to, I, I think that they, they don't like, feel very hopeful about that. Like, they think that's not going to be a good life. So, I don't know. I, I do think it's very hard. Um, there's also, a, a, I think he's an economist named Roz Chetty, and he does research on, like, neighborhoods that have intergenerational poverty. And a similar thing, when there's not a lot of uh, economic diversity and there's not role models of people that are in the community doing you know, they always talk about, like, business owners and entrepreneurs, but I just think you need, like, normal middle-class role models. And when there aren't a lot of that because there aren't the companies relocating, I just think people feel hopeless and they, you know, they do what they need to do to survive. Yeah, um, just a one little anecdote um, to append to this before I move to Tim. Um, it can even be in cities where things are better, like a city that's really yeah. thriving and growing in the southeast is Nashville. And just this past week, the um, yeah. the uh, police of ch- the chief of police in Nashville, his son committed uh, multiple violent you know crimes. Oh, no. Two police were shot, and there may have been another individual in that same crime. Oh, and you know, the chief of police said we tried all we could. He just Wanted to oh follow God. this negative path, kind of like you're talking about. That's my with a role model. So, in, in a well, city yeah, that, that right. has a, a better situation. Yeah, yeah. and, yeah, and yeah. actually, Nashville's had a really bad problem with violent crime. I guess just the last thing I'll say, because I know we're running out of time, is it is a really small number, like an infinitesimally small number of people who actually commit violent crime. So, you know, even though we've seen, you know, the rates increase, there are only like 20,000 people murdered every year in this country. And the biggest problem is when there is a feeling of there's no public safety in a community because, like, the arrest rates are really low. So there's a lot of variation in terms of, like, the homicide clearance rate. So if I had one thing that I would say that would be the best thing to actually, like, realistically reduce uh, gun violence, 
it's increased the, the amount of times that they're actually bringing the, the perpetrator to justice because it's not a lot of people. It's less than 1% of the population that does any of this stuff. It's not most poor people. It's not most low income. It's, it's a very tiny, tiny number of people. And they, they're able to really wreak havoc on neighborhoods and it's all the people that live there that, you know, they suffer. And that's a really hard problem to solve because it's very difficult to uh, have the resources to, like, investigate these types of, of homicides. Um, a lot of times, like, it's less than 50% of people who commit homicide ever get arrested for it, and even lower rates of conviction because it's hard to get people to, uh, to talk. So that's something that's really noteworthy. Um, and cities that increase the homicide clearance rate, like my own, we have about 100% clearance rate. And we had a really – I live in a small town. It's the town Champaign-Urbana where the University of Illinois is. We had 17 murders in 2021, and they were hardly I – mean, which is, like, crazy. We're a town of 80,000 people. It was, like, an enormous increase. And then they got that clearance rate up, and now we have shootings but they're more likely to find a person and arrest them because it's not most people. It's like a tiny, there's not like thousands of people running around doing this. Um, and it's, yeah, yeah so it's, it's complex. Um, I haven't heard about the Nashville thing. That's very, very sad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I'm going to turn it over to Tim, but like people always, you know, gravitate towards thinking about big cities. Uh, and I looked up cause I knew about per capita, that concept, and I, and I showed one of my students in high school last year, I was like, actually, Dublin, Georgia is the murder capital of Georgia. Not Atlanta. It's Dublin. Oh, Atlanta's I like believe it. Six, way how, down. How because small it's is Dublin? Capita. What's, Dublin. What's oh, it's Dublin. I, I don't even know. It's it, it's not real big. The fact that you've never even heard of it tells you all you need to yeah. know. Um, yeah. It, it's yeah. that country singer, small town that he talks about yeah. that these things don't happen, but yet they do. I'm going to pass it, though, to Tim because he's got some more great questions. Tim? Uh, good evening, Dr. Wade. Thank you for being with us. Um, I actually only have a couple of questions um, about a completely different subject, but you made a post about book bans. Oh, and sure. I was wondering yeah. why book bans are suddenly so prevalent in this country. Oh, yeah, that's a great – so, um, you know, I organized an event, and it's actually going to be recorded, and I'm going to have the video for it so I can share it with you guys because I didn't – I'm not the expert on it, but I brought some experts together. Um, so we've seen this huge – so the book ban is the thing that we say. That's very sensational. They're not really book bans because you can still get the books, but they're usually – they're challenges. And so what we're seeing a lot of is in, in school districts, just parents and members of the community are challenging books that they're learning about that are in the school libraries. And there's a couple of reasons. Um, one is during the pandemic, parents were like, if the kids were doing Zoom school, parents started to pay a little more attention to what was going on, uh, maybe what kids were learning in class because they were doing it from home. But also parents started going to uh, the school board meetings because they were upset about some of the pandemic policies of the schools. So parents started to just kind of get more involved in local school board politics, not even about books to begin with, right? So just to go about COVID policies and masks. And then some parents would be at these meetings talking about, like, I heard that this book was in the library and it has sexually explicit material in it and we don't like it. And so people started talking to each other about this. And there's, there's national organizations that, you know, kind of 
give people information about lists of books that they can go look for and find out if the school has them. And so, you know, there's been a, a big thing where school boards, like the, the politics of local schools, a lot of people weren't involved for a long time. And, you know, a lot more uh, Republicans took over a lot of school boards during COVID because people, parents were mad at the policies. And so then they kind of got on to some of the culture war issues because that's something that a lot of people find, you know, I guess they have big opinions on that. But I think it's a, it's a culture war thing. Um, it's definitely something that people, you know, they get fired up about it. They, they learn about what's going on and they, they, they decide they have a position. Um, but, yeah, it, it's been interesting. But what I think um, we saw in the election that just happened is a lot of the school boards that had, had gone to the to, – that were controlled by Republicans and that were kind of being – pursuing some of these, like, book restrictions, let's call them, um, they, they lost. They had, like, in uh, Pennsylvania, there was a school district that they ousted all the Republicans and the people who ran and replaced them were Democrats that were like, we are going to really – kind of back off a little bit on the, the book cancellation stuff. But parents can still challenge books. And if a book does actually have, you know, like sexually explicit material, that's something that is more likely to get the book pulled from a library. And I've talked to school board members about this. Um, but if a book just contains some information, you know, if, it's, if it has – if it's a book that's a story, but maybe it contains something that somebody objects to because, you know, they, they don't like the level of detail, then that, that's more of a gray area. And what's crazy is, you know, this stuff is decided by a small number of individuals. It could just be the principal of a school. If a parent challenges it, then the principal says, okay, you know, they hear them out or not, or the school board who's elected, but so – yeah, I think, you know, the reason they're seeing more of them, I, I don't know. Some people get really fired up about this stuff. Um, yeah, it is, a, it is an interesting thing. I think people just, the culture wars, they love it. <laughs> yeah, but, but some of the same people who are pushing this sort of thing seem to be the, uh, those that are self-professed lovers of free speech. So... Yeah. Is, uh, aren't we dealing with the contradiction in terms here? Yeah, it's very interesting that, I mean, I, I think that that's the thing is like people say it's about parents' rights. So I think the biggest contradiction is where people say like, well, parents want to have more influence over what their kids are reading, right? So we don't want the books to have these materials, but that would also imply that they wouldn't want other other parents to be able to let their kids have access to them. So it is, it is, I think that's, it's weird. That is, I think, a contradiction. And, and it is more, you know, we are seeing these current challenges are definitely from, um, you know, people that don't want to definitely about, like, sexuality and race. But it's interesting that mm -hmm. a few years ago, some of the most challenged books um, were books that were maybe uh, full of, like, racial stereotypes or, um, like, To Kill a Mockingbird was one of the books that was really challenged or, like, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn and so there were challenges from the left for different reasons because they didn't mm -hmm. want books that were, that were like, say, promoting uh, stereotypes or racism or that could be viewed as triggering or there was a little bit of, like, safetyism where we're like, we don't want kids to get upset about reading about something about, like, sexual assault or suicide. So there was a little bit of, like, let's protect the kids, but then there's, you know, this, this whole thing that the speaker, because, again, I'm not the expert on banned books, 
her argument is that people, books are powerful. They're these, like, powerful symbols. And I think it's, like, there is something going on with public education right now in this country where it's been largely, I mean, in, in a lot of places, you know, there are groups that have a lot of influence over it. And other groups want that influence over public education, or they would like to weaken it in some way. So books are like a way to do that, because clearly it gets parents going to the school board meetings. And I don't know that it's working, though, because I think that a lot of them lost. But, yeah, I think it's just like a fight for power, and books are the proxy um, in mm-hmm. some way. Well, I appreciate you uh, giving me all that good information, Doctor, and I'm going to send it back to David now. David? <laughs> yes. Well, Dr. Wade, uh, you have been most insightful on all these topics. Um, But if our listeners want to read anything that you've done, tell us where they can find your work. And it can be social media. It can be more formal. Just let us know. Sure. So most of my academic research is behind a paywall because the journals won't let just average folks get into those uh, the, the published research. But what I do is I will put snippets of it on my Substack. And I also post a lot of um, data analyses. And so it's called the 1,000 Cities Project on Substack, Magic Wave. You should be able to find 1,000 Cities Project. And it's called that because I'm tracking gun violence in over 1,000 cities, and a lot of them are quite small. So, what, you know, we talk about the big cities all the time and, and, like, the gun violence issues that they have, but I'm very interested and concerned about the amounts of gun violence in in communities with, you know, 20,000 people, 50,000 people, uh, because, you know, it's causing real problems. And so I do do graphs, I do charts. I sometimes do little commentaries on, like, a story that's happened recently. Um, And it's free. I don't charge anything. Um, I've got about 100 subscribers, and I I don't post every week, but I have a big backlog. I have probably 20 or 30 things that I've posted, all different kinds of deep dives into a different – city or a state or, you know, something like that, or I track things over time. So please, yeah, please check it out. Um, and uh, people have ideas, like questions about certain cities uh, and the trends that they've experienced, I can share those things as well. See, I'll tell you how much you learn. I've known for you, you for over three years now, and I didn't even know you had a substack. So oh, you'll probably oh, have 101 I, subscribers, 102, oh, and you hopefully even more for the oh, listeners. Good. So that's good to know. And, Dr. White, you were uh, thoroughly entertaining and informative. Can't wait to have you back because um, – and I would never put you on the spot on this one. We'll give you plenty of lead time. But you taught – I know you teach up at University of Illinois Springfield religion and politics, and we can barely find anybody that will delve into that minefield. Oh. So maybe in the future we can oh, get you sure. back. And I and I know someone, another professor who's a real expert on that and who who would be an interesting guest. So, yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks again for being on the show. Thank All you, right. Doctor. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Yes. You too. Dr. Magic Wade of University of Illinois Springfield. Look for her Thousand Cities Project on Substack um, when you can. Um, so uh, let's move uh, you know off of that back to our um wrap up of the uh, election last Tuesday we're talking about Andy Bashir and I'll go ahead and tell you Tim I'm going to make a kind of a hot take here I actually think Daniel Cameron long term could have a longer and brighter future 
in Kentucky politics and maybe politics in general than Andy Bashir. Before I tell you why I think that, Tim, what do you think of that take? Uh, I don't know. You know, he is a uh, devotee of President Trump. Maybe his fortunes, as the fortunes of many in this country, are either going to rise some or, or, or fall hard, depending on what happens to Donald Trump. There's one thing. But another thing, you know, he's still in Kentucky, a very conservative state. Uh, He might turn around and, uh, you know, the Senate seat comes open in the future, and it will in the future because nature takes its course, you know, and people come and people go, and uh, he might run for the U.S. Senate and, you know, actually get elected. But uh, I think he needs to uh, polish up a little bit because – he didn't run a very good campaign, to be honest with you. Yeah, I, but he did run a good campaign for attorney general, and I'm not some big fan of Daniel Cameron. I just understand Kentucky politics. Um, mm-hmm. and this is a state that understands that they have to diversify, and, and they and Daniel Cameron is a much more knowledgeable individual than Herschel Walker. He's an individual that has a family he can actually put on a Christmas card as opposed to Tim Scott, um, you know, after after all that mystery that was mocked on Saturday Night Live. And so he has some things going for him. He could run for that Senate seat if it comes open recent enough. In four years, when Andy Bashir can't run for governor again, one of these other constitutional officers will run. What if the attorney general runs? He slides back into his old spot. He's only He's in his 30s. He's a millennial a young millennial at that mm-hmm. point, um, mm-hmm. he could also do this thing that any time I mention it, so many people think that I'm crazy, but I don't see how I am because they do it in every other industry. You go back to the State House and the State Senate. Roy Barnes did it. He, did, he lost mm-hmm. in 1990. He went back to the other house. He rebuilt. He built uh, coalitions. He ran for governor again and won. You know, he'll he'll have – but, uh, but overshadowing no. everything. So but, he, o- but, overs- yeah. but overshadowing everything. And it was in this election because the abortion issue. And he was just immovable on that issue, and he was way on the wrong side of that issue. Uh, anybody that runs against him in the future, if, if abortion remains a, a front and center hot burner issue in the country, and and you've got to say that it is the hot burner issue in the country right now, he's on the wrong side of it, and somebody's going to beat him over the head with it. How much is that going to hurt him? Well, it certainly hurt him in this race. And, and I think that's an issue that the Republican Party is going to have to figure out and, and, you know, after the next day, it was like they ain't figured it out. You can tell they didn't learn their lesson. But but uh, the other half of this is Andy Bashir. Andy Bashir is the kind of person that if – I think there's a lot of smart folks in our party that know that you have to appeal to 50% plus one, and Andy Bashir mm-hmm. can do that in a state like Kentucky. He could do that all over the country. But mm-hmm. there's this thing called the Democratic primary. And I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of folks in the Democratic primary that know that a country that's, you know, 200, nearly 50 years old, um, 
they, they probably need to have a woman president at some point. Um, our country yeah. is diversifying all the time. So he's going to have to be part of the he, right kind of ticket, and I don't know that he can have that ticket, and so therefore he's going to have to hit yeah. it right. And I don't so, know if he's going to so, hit it right. So he, and he has nowhere to go in Kentucky because what's going to happen is just yeah. like south of him in Tennessee, Phil Bredesen was an incredibly popular governor in Tennessee – Approval ratings through the roof. He ran for Senate, and he lost and didn't even lose close. And I think if Andy Bashir runs for a statewide federal office like Senate, that there's going to be that um, ceiling for him because that's just who Kentuckians are right now. Tim? Well, I, I, before we go, I, I'm looking at the clock, and it's time to go. But yeah. Before we go, I wanted to mention two other people that kind of flew under the radar but did something very important Tuesday night. One of them was a fellow by the name of Gabe Amo, and he got elected as the first black member of Congress ever from the state of Rhode Island. Kudos to him and also a lady by the name of Sherelle Park. She became the 100th mayor of the city of Philadelphia ever female mayor of that city. So I, I just wanted to mention those two people because those were great things that happened that a lot of folks might not have noticed with everything else that was going on. Yeah, and there's so many things we didn't get to. And one thing we're going to have to get to because of what happened was Ohio had referendums and the voters spoke and the Republicans in that state appear not to be listing, and that's going to be the story, not the referendum. Yep. The fact that the Republicans are trying to say, nope, voters, you're, you're not getting what you voted for. That can, story is going to continue to unfold. We're going to talk about it either next week or some week in the future. And next week we're excited because we're having another professor from University of Springfield, I guess it's that, that month, but uh, for the second time, Dr. Isabel Skinner, she's going to come on. Last time we talked about something totally different, but her forte is immigration issues and border politics. We started this uh, discussion with Ron Hetrick a few weeks ago with employment, but there's some other issues surrounding that political issue. And um, we got an expert, Dr. Isabel Skinner. We're going to let her discuss that in detail next week. But until then... In the Kudzu Vine. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution. With a strong and united 